we're today going to put a close on our series we've been in called Rooted in Christ. We've been looking at the book of Colossians and Paul's letter to the church at Colossae about basically how to live an authentic Christian life, um, especially in the fact that the Colossian church had been kind of invaded by false teachers who had come in to teach a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus. In fact, anything outside the gospel of Christ really isn't a gospel because it's not good news. And what they were sharing wasn't necessarily good news. And so Paul wrote this letter in response to what he was hearing about this church that he had never yet visited. He had not been there personally. He was in prison at this time in Rome because of his advancing of the gospel. But he's passionate about this church. And I've loved the way that he has moved through this letter. If any of you have read Colossians in one setting, you'll kind of notice how he goes from this grand view of Christ, his supremacy, how he is creator and ruler over all things. And then he talks about how we are then to be clothed with Christ and how we live our lives, the things that we're to put off the things that were to take on, uh, that were to be clothed with Christ. And then in these, as he moves toward the end of his letter, what I love about what Paul does is he takes this kind of macro view of Jesus as this Lord and supreme over all things, and he says, he works in our life in the micro level. The everyday stuff of life needs to be under his lordship. He's not just some far distant ruler who has supreme authority over all things. While he is that, he also is our personal Lord and Savior where the rubber meets the road. Now, in our English phrases, we have a statement that looks something like this on the screen. Blank is my life. Blank is my life. Some of you um, could fill that blank with maybe a hobby. Golf is my life. Uh, for others, it, it might be uh, another passion that you have. Um, it might be your kids. My kids are my life. I mean, I've actually heard parents say that. I got to tell you right now, they're not my life. I love my kids, but my kids are not my life. Um, but people have things that they fill in that blank with, and maybe you've discovered in your life that you've filled that blank in with some various things. And that blank basically defines what that person holds as valuable. What is the most important thing? How they prioritize their life is all determined by that blank, what really holds the place in that blank. In fact, that thing in the blank consumes their thoughts at night. During the day, they're thinking about it. It is their life passion. It's their driving force. Now, if Paul, the apostle, was to finish this statement for us, he would have a very important term in that blank. In fact, for Paul, I, it was pretty obvious what his answer to this statement would be. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he kind of just flat out says it. He says it this way, for to me, to live is Christ. I mean, you couldn't get a little any simpler than that. For, for to me, to live is Christ. He says in Colossians, we've already read this, but in, back in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For you died and your, and your life is now hidden with Christ. And he says it this way, When Christ, who is your life, okay, so he's kind of telling us who is our life, it's Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, I've never actually really noticed this verse I mean, I've read it as I've read through the Bible, and many of you have probably read this verse, but this, this time it really jumped off the page because of what it says. Look, look what it says. It says, for this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, 
He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, what Paul was addressing here is not only Christ is my life, but my life actually backs up that statement that Christ is my life in the way that I live. I don't just teach it, I actually live it. So Paul's answer would have been pretty obvious to fill in that statement. He would have said, Christ is my life. He might say it this way, wherever I may be, whatever I may be doing, whenever it may be happening, however I may feel, Christ is my life. But could that be said of you? Could that be said of me? And more importantly, if your spouse or your children or your parents or your employer or your coworkers or other members of the community who live around you, your neighbor, could they fill in that blank for you the same way you would want to fill in that blank? Today in our last message in the Rooted in Christ series, Paul will challenge us to fill that blank and to fill it with Christ. In fact, we're going to learn today that really what he desires, what Christ desires above all is that our life would be in Christ, that our life would be in Christ. Now, why is this an important thing? Because we understand that we give Jesus our life. We, we understand this, but it's one thing to have this personal idea that he is my life. It's another thing to actually let that happen every day. Here's what this passage is speaking against. It's speaking against the tendency we all have to compartmentalize our lives. In other words, we have boxes that we live our life in. And oftentimes, those boxes do not blend. We live in that box, and in that box alone, we live a certain way. And then depending on the box we're in determines the way that we actually act and operate within that box. So you're here in the box called church, which is an expression of your faith. And in this box, you might behave a certain way. You might be friendlier. You might you know, worship differently. You might enjoy God's word. But then there's this box called your personal and private life. And in your personal and private life... Is Jesus involved in that area? The answer is yes, but are you involving him in that area? And then there's this box called the home life. And there's this box called the work. And there's a box called how you interact in community. And the reality is, if Jesus is your life, then that's going to overflow into all compartments of life. But what we tend to do is live compartmentally. There's a word for this that people in, in, in the community use when it comes to Christians, and they call it hypocrisy, right? When we live one way in one environment, but we live differently in another environment. And what Paul is addressing here is that tendency to live a certain way in a certain moment and not recognize that the lordship of Christ should transcend all areas. In fact, Jesus said he came that we might have life, and have it more abundantly. That word abundant life is not a word that means can be contained in one small sector of your life. Okay, abundance is overflowing. It's gonna bleed into your family life. It's gonna bleed into your work life. It's gonna bleed into how you interact in the community. 
And so we're going to look today at different ways that we tend to compartmentalize our lives, but where Paul is saying, no, 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 it's in those places that if your life really is in Christ, then here's how that looks in each of these contexts. All right? So I'm going to use some illustrations to help us today. I used to be a children's pastor, so you can all be kids just for a moment, all right? I'm going to let this first silk represent that section of my life that's called my personal life, okay, my private life. And here's, here's what we know to be true. The public world wants your faith to stay private. Isn't that the message that we're hearing? You can believe whatever you want to believe, just don't believe it in my space, all right? Well, let me just remind you, that's counter-biblical, all right? So no matter what the culture tells you, that is not what Jesus tells us. But yet we tend to have a sector called our private life that we do live a certain way in. And when Christ is my life, then his peace influences my attitudes and my actions. Let's look at what it says in Colossians. His peace that influences my attitudes and my actions. In Colossians chapter 3, and if you're here today and want to take notes, there's some ways you can do that. On the back of your bulletin, there's fill in the blanks. I don't want any of you to feel incomplete when you go home and look in the back of the bulletin and go, oh my goodness, there were blanks, and now I feel so empty. Fill the blanks in. Or if you're not a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, you can use the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app. We, we use that app to push our notes through there. So if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can just go to the menu, more, events, find Neighborhood Church, and our notes are there. Or just go to albanync.org right now. We have free Wi-Fi here for you. You can go there, and our notes are available on our website as well. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Now, when you think about Jesus and his entire life, his life was characterized by peace. Okay, peace with the Father, obviously we saw that as he interacted with his Father through prayer, and we saw that peace and harmony that he had with his Father, but he also imparted peace to others, didn't he? In fact, the prophet Isaiah, when he was foretelling about the coming of the Messiah, we often hear this at Christmas time, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Prince of Peace. Interesting, Prince of Peace. Because Paul, maybe he's thinking of that when he, when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let that peace rule. In fact, on the night that Jesus was to be arrested and then beaten and crucified, he, he, he knew it was coming. And so he had this last supper with his disciples, and in that conversation, in John 14, 27, he says these words, peace I leave with you. In other words, I'm imparting something to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You see, Jesus knew what was going to happen in the lives of those disciples upon his arrest. He knew that they were going to flee. He knew that basically for them, the rug was pulled out from under their feet because they believed this was their Messiah. And nothing bad could happen to the Messiah. 
even though he warned them several times, look, this is what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. Peter tried to say, Lord, you know, that will never happen to you, Lord. Um, but the truth is it was. And he saw that ahead of time. And he said, look, I know they're going to need peace. And so he spoke about this peace that he would give them, that he would impart to them. And here's the thing he says about this peace. It's not the kind of peace the world gives. It's a different kind of peace. So what does the world offer when it comes to peace? When it comes to the world, basically peace, worldly peace, would say this, that when everything around me is peaceful, then I can experience peace. So for example, some of you think that when the home is quiet and the kids are not fighting and my husband's not complaining or my wife is not nagging, then, then I can have peace. That's how we look at worldly peace. When everything peaceful around us happens, then we can have peace. But what Jesus says is, no, the peace I impart, the origin of that peace is here. And no matter what is happening around you, whatever chaos is taking place around you, there is a calming peace within you, even in the midst of chaos. Now, the disciples didn't quite grasp it, right? Sometimes we don't either, do we? We let our circumstances determine our peace. And friends, if there's ever a time in which we live in such discord, it's today, right? I mean, it's, it's obvious in media, in social media, in things that are politically charged. Whoa, there is so much discord. And if we're trying to think that somehow we're going to find peace in political agendas, no, you're not. If somehow you think you're going to find peace in arguing on social media, no, you're not, all right? It, or, it originates here, and that peace then influences and determines how I look at what's happening around me, and when I let the peace of Christ rule here in my hearts, then I'm going to be more peaceful with my children, with my spouse, with my coworkers, with my neighbors, because I'm not looking for them to establish peace. I am a peacemaker, which Jesus says are people who are blessed, right? And also, when the peace of Christ rules in me here, then even if life is very chaotic right now, and maybe for you it is, it does not have to determine how you feel here. And that's why at times people who believe and trust Jesus really can look like they're insane, Right? How can you be so calm in the midst of such horrific and terrible things? It's because I can have peace that rules my heart. I'm not ignorant of what's going on in our world, but I don't have to be unrest because of that. I can be at peace knowing who's in control. In fact, uh, he, Paul, speaks about this peace in his letter to the Philippians. And and this is a really important passage as well when it comes to peace because he gives us a practical application for this peace. Let's look at it. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Do not be anxious, because that's kind of our go-to, right? (laughs) That's what we do. We just get anxious. So he says, don't do what you do by default. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation. So what what is the qualification here? Every situation. That's it. There's no like, well, in the good situations or the peaceful situations or when nobody's fighting or when everything's going great. No, he says in all situations, by prayer, there's a key there, and petition, with thanksgiving, you're going to notice in the Bible that peace and thanksgiving often 
go together in passages of Scripture. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. In other words, it's not going to make sense. But it's peace that transcends understanding. Will do what? It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this is what's interesting about this idea of peace. Paul is speaking about how this peace is like a guard. Now, I'm not talking like a Barney Fife kind of guard. You know, some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe you visualize a massive-looking individual who is guarding, right? Interesting that peace would be used in such an almost kind of defensive yet offensive kind of way, that peace will guard your heart and your mind. It's a guardian over your life. So when stuff happens, it's like, no, wait a second, you're within the confines of my guardianship. The peace of Christ is ruling here. When you confess your need of Christ, when you petition him, when you pray to him, that peace is going to come, and it's going to guard your heart and your mind. And it's going to cast out anxiety. So who needs that kind of peace? We all do. But how's it happen? Paul says it this way, back to verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule you notice those words? Let it. Let the peace of Christ rule. How many know this is a choice we have to make? It's not going to happen automatically. Because we tend to want to think unpeaceful thoughts. We want to tend to become fearful or become anxious. He says, no, let it happen. It's there. Let the peace of Christ rule. That says a couple of things. One, that it's a choice. We have to yield to that peace. God, right now, even though stuff around me is chaotic, I'm choosing to let your peace rule here in me. I'm yielding to that. And secondly, it means that that word rule actually means to be in control of someone's activity by making a decision. Here's what happens. When I allow that peace to rule my heart and my mind, then that controls my activity of how I'm going to interact in the environments in which I'm in. How I'm going to speak to my children and my husband and my coworkers or people in our community because the peace starts here. And it works its way out. And when that peace, which only Christ can give, governs how we interpret our experiences and respond to our challenges, a couple of things are going to happen. One, I'm going to be a more peaceful person in my relationships. And some of you know your relationships need some peace. And if you're waiting for the other person to be peaceful, knock it off. They don't control your peace. Not according to Scripture. The peace of Christ rules our hearts. That's one. Two, then we tend to have gratitude. Remember, peace and thanksgiving go together. When I know his peace is there, I'm grateful and I'm thankful. What do we normally do? Complain when things are not peaceful. When things are not going our way, we complain. He says, no, the peace is going to rule, and because of that, you're going to be thankful. So our peace is not about controlling. Here's the problem we have as Americans especially. We want to fix everything so we can be at peace. So we feel like peace really is when I can control the environments, when I can control the outcomes. No, you know what that does? That leads to fear and anxiety because you have to be in control of it. And how many know there are things you can't control? There are things that happen in our world, in your life. Some things you can control. Some of you bring enough of your own problems on yourself. I get it. But there are some things you can control. Then there are some things you can't. And there's a lion's share of things you can't. So what does that mean? I don't let those things determine. I trust the one who is in control. 
the Lord who rules peace in my heart. And so in the personal application, in our personal space, is his peace affecting your attitudes and your actions? Because here's something I know, that where the peace of Christ rules, there also the word of Christ dwells. And Paul brings these two together as he talks about our personal life. He talks about peace, then he moves on to say that when, my, when Christ is my life, I'll be immersed in his word. I'll be immersed in his word. Look at it in Colossians 3.16. As he moves now from this idea of the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts, he now says this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with what? There's that word again, gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now this word, he says, let the message dwell richly or to richly dwell among you. What that actually means is to take up residence. That's actually what the word is, to dwell. It means to take up residence. That means the word of God is not to be the friend who pops by for a brief visit and then leaves. The word of God is not meant to be the relative who stays maybe for a couple of days and then leaves. No, he says, in fact, the word of God should dwell. It should take up its inhabitants in your life. It should take up residence. I like the way that the message translation states it. Eugene Peterson, who passed away this past week, put together his translation, the message translation of the Bible, and it says it this way. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your life. So the question is, are you allowing not just the peace of Christ to rule over your heart and mind, but are you letting the word of God dwell in you? David said, how can a man keep his way pure? By hiding your word where? In my heart. In my heart. Letting it take up residence here inside of me. And what does that mean? That, that means that we need to allow the word of God to so take up residence that it informs and it infuses how I go about my day. It's not just a devotional I have, check off the list in the morning, but instead it takes residence in my life and finds its way through just here to here to, to how I'm actually living out my life. So we need to leverage opportunities to allow the word to take up that residence in your heart. So how do you do that? It's in those personal devotion times where you are reading and meditating upon the word and thinking, okay, God, how can I give this word room in my life today? How's this word going to best apply to me as it comes to me being a dad, a husband, a worker in my workplace, or a member of my community? How's it going to live itself out in my life today? Also, that means maybe getting involved in a small group. Maybe for you, personal devotions right now are a struggle. It's hard to stay focused. But get into a group of people who want to study together some things and have that accountability where you can iron, sharpen iron, and learn the word together. Sign up for a small group. Get involved in a life group. But also, that means you can also have, there's so many resources today for, for us to, to use to grow in the word of God. There's, of course, all kinds of stuff we can get electronically, but podcasts, listening to some great communicators teach the word of God. I have a lot of pastors I listen to to sharpen my own uh, understanding of the word of God. Maybe that also means listening to wholesome music and entertainment. 
that it's Word of God infused. It doesn't mean that you have to always be on TBN at your home, but you get the idea. There needs to be an opportunity for you to grow and enrich in those areas so the Word of God can dwell there. So when it comes to our personal life, the peace of Christ rules in our hearts and our minds to act out through our actions, and then we have also the Word of God dwelling in our life that it might move through us. That's personally. Now, if this is happening then everything else should be an overflow of what's happening here. And that's what Paul moves on to. He says this, that when Christ is my life, then his presence transforms my family. Let this red silk represent your family life. Look at what it says in Colossians. He moves from this idea of you personally, his peace, the word of God dwelling. Notice where he goes now. He goes to our dwelling places, right? He goes to where we really live life. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. What Paul's saying is when we've got this right, when Christ is dwelling in our lives by his peace and his word, then there should be a Christian ethic within us that transforms relationships from what do you owe me to what do I owe you? See, most relationships get in trouble when it's about what are you going to do for me? That's the selfish, non-biblical, non-word of God, non-peace of God way of approaching relationships. But rather, when Christ infuses our life personally, it becomes, what can I do for you? Jesus was the example who came not to be served, right, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Christ is your life, it's going to impact your relationship. So he breaks it down. And how many know that home life is where you are most you. It's where you're relaxed. It's where you let your guard down. It's where you are most you. And and the challenge that we have in the Christian faith is that people are fine being Christian in this sector called worship. But then they go home and they do not take that ethic with them to the home place. Maybe you grew up in a house where dad drug you to church every week, but he didn't live the mission of the church Monday through Saturday. And so faith was something you did on a certain day, but it didn't make itself into your home. Isn't it true that home is that place where love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and all those things that are Christ-like that should be within us is fully going to be tested, right? That's where it all gets tested, how you interact as husband and wife and in your, in your dad and daughter or your mother-son relationships. That's where the rubber meets the road. And so he gives us instruction about how Christ being our life affects there. And he says to the women, submit to your husbands. Now, let me just remind you, women, this word is not about inferiority. What I love about the gospel is the gospel actually brought equality among all people. In fact, I think if it wasn't for the gospel, we wouldn't probably have equality as we do today. 
Because when the gospel came, it said, doesn't matter if you're free or slave, male or female, Greek or Jew, we are all united in Christ. So lest we forget, the gospel brought equality into our world. So women, it's not about inferiority. What it's about is it's about a humble submission for the other. And guess what? Jesus did that. Jesus, who was like the Father, Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself and submitted to his Father's plan. But he was equal to the Father. It wasn't about lowering his quality. It wasn't about becoming inferior to the Father. But because he loved his Father's mission, he chose to humble himself for the other. That's what submission is all about. And he says how we're to submit, as is fitting to the Lord. You know what that means? One, it could mean that submission is fitting to the Lord, but I think it also could mean this. If your husband is demanding that you submit in ways that are not God-honoring, ladies, you're off the hook because you have a higher calling to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And if your husband is causing you to submit in ungodly ways, you have no obligation to submit because your authority ultimately is Christ, as is fitting in the Lord. And then he says to the husbands, love your wives. And all the gals say, man, how do they get off so easy? Well, lest we think that's an easy statement, let me unpack it for you just a little bit. Men, this is not sexual love. This is not romantic love. This is not if you love me, I'll love you love. The love he actually uses, that word, is that word that is the agape love of God. It's the kind of love that looks to the highest good of the other person at your own expense. Okay? So what that means is self-sacrificial love. What that means is unconditional, no strings attached kind of love. That doesn't mean, well, when she loves me like she's supposed to, I'll love her. Or when she submits like she's supposed to, I'll love her. No. It's not conditioned. And what's beautiful about this love relationship is that when it's in harmony, women will want to submit to the love of the husband, not the tyranny, but the love. It, it, it becomes a beautiful thing. When submission and love are expressed in their biblical ways, it's not about inferiority, it's about a wonderful union of love and submission. And his call to us men is to love that kind of way. And I'll tell you what, that's a high order. To love as he loved. That's the call. And he says to not be harsh with them. In other words, you're loving them because you love them with no strings attached. And even if they're at this point not being very submissive, you love them. And you're not going to be harsh with them. Now, in the culture in which Paul's writing, men could be very harsh with their, with their wives. And they typically were. In fact, they were looked at as commodities that are there for my pleasure. But I would ignore you or treat you harshly until I needed something from you, usually sensual, and then I would give you attention. He's saying that's not the way it is. Do not be harsh. But you're loving them in all situations. And then it's interesting, he moves from that marriage relationship, husband, directly into parenting. And I think that's important because if kids actually see love and submission acted out in a Christ-honoring home, then what they're called to do should happen pretty easily. 
Now, I know there's a sinful nature in kids because there isn't us, right? So there's going to be disobedience, but when they're seeing love and submission worked out in the context of a godly home, then obedience tends to come. And he says, children, obey your parents, right? Now, this is not a command that's given by Christ as in something he never did before. I think it's interesting that Jesus himself did this. In Luke chapter 2, it says that basically Jesus went to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and he obeyed them. Now, think about this for a second. Who is Jesus, right? Okay, think about it. He is God, He was the creator. In fact, all that we have created through Jesus, right? That's what we saw in Colossians, including Joseph and Mary, right? His earthly parents. I mean, if anybody could say to his parents, who are you to tell me what to do? I created you and everything around you. How ironic, right? But rather he submitted into the role in which he was in and he was obedient as a child, as is fitting to the Lord. And that moves now to the next thought where it says parents, or especially fathers, are not to embitter their children. So we see this idea of husband and wife loving each other, submission and love. Children then should be able to obey, and he instructs fathers not to embitter them. What's he talking about? He's talking primarily about the fact that in the culture in which they lived, and very much still true today, that that men have a priority to, to discipline in the home, but not to do that harshly but also not to become so passive and permissive that you don't act, that you don't lead in your home. So he says, fathers, not embitter your children. How does that happen? Embittering the children happen when you are harsh and iron-fisted. And some of you grew up in a harsh, iron-fisted home where the father ruled with an iron fist. Not gracious, not merciful. And because of that, you became bitter. You became angry. You know what that feels like when all of a sudden, because of this sense of no mercy, no compassion, no love, no nothing, just harshness, um, it caused you to become bitter. He says, don't do that. Instead, that example of love and submission should rule the home. So when Christ is our life, then his presence fills our marriages, how we parent our kids, how we look at things. That's what Paul's saying. It breaks down into the home environment. And then he moves on from there. And he says that when Christ is my life, I'm a positive influence at work. We'll let this green one represent your work environment. Now, some of you are retired and you're praising the Lord for that, but a lot of people here are still employed. And so he has instruction for not just your private life, not just how you live at home, but also how you are at work. Now, why would he care about that? So Paul goes into this in Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And I know sometimes that's what you feel like. I get it, but we'll, we'll, we'll draw the context here in a minute. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry to their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I want you to picture for a minute the church at Colossae. Because there's men and women, Greek, Jews, masters, and slaves, all attending the same church, having fellowship with each other, 
And it could be that in the same room there was a master of a slave, because a lot of these slaves were slaves that were domestic servants that worked in your own home. And how easy it would be to compartmentalize, right? You're here at church, you're my slave. Well, not really. We're actually co-laborers here, but then in the work environment, we have a different relationship. So you can see how easy it would become for that aspect of lordship of Christ to become compartmentalized. And he says, this is how it's going to happen. Now, here's the thing. He's not advocating for slavery, right? That's not his point. In fact, there are other times in his writings where where Paul admonishes those who are slaves to to work toward freedom. Many of the slaves, by the way, were indentured servants. You know what that kind of means? They, They had a debt they're trying to pay off, and so they are serving with their life as a slave to pay off that debt. Many times it would be the children of a family who would become the slaves so their debt could be paid off for their parents. So there would be the, you know, it wouldn't necessarily always be a permanent fixture. So he's not speaking for slavery. So in our context, it would be the employer-employee relationship. And many of you in the room, you're an employee or you're an employer. And he has advice for you. And he says to the employee, you should be the best employee in your organization, period. You should work hard and with integrity. Why? Because you're not working for that paycheck and you're not working for that boss. Well, yeah, I am. Well, not really. Paul says, look, you're doing this as unto the Lord and he's going to reward. Some of you are working for a bonus or a paycheck and Jesus is taking note, and he says there's going to be a reward for how we live our lives out in the context of everyday stuff, like how we treat each other in the workplace. Interesting how he brings this thought, not just to, well, that's just work, just go do whatever you want. No, your working is unto the Lord. So he sets a standard for that. But then he also says to the masters or the employers, look, you need to be leading in two ways, with justice and fairness. Now, most of you know that when you had gripes with your boss, it was under one of those categories, justice or fairness. And he's saying to the masters, look, you don't, full, you don't have the final authority here. You're actually under my authority, and you rule as I did with justice and fairness. That means when it comes to the qualifications for your employee, to your evaluations, to your payment, you ought to be the best paying employer because you are honoring me. And there are organizations, by the way, that are great to work for who have a Christian ethic that works throughout the organization. Maybe you're not working in one of those. I understand. But employers who get this concept are some of the best people to work for. Are you one of those if you're an employer? If you're an employee and not working for one of these kind of God-honoring leaders, Are you still God-honoring in the way you live? Paul says, this is where it it comes out. It's actually going to be in your workplace that you're going to have a positive influence among your coworkers and especially before your boss. And you're doing all these things, not for a paycheck, not for the boss who's watching. No, you're doing them as unto me. And I'm taking note. And then when Christ is my life, I have one more silk here. I live wisely and graciously before others. This is going to be your community life or how you deal with outsiders. So it's interesting that the gospel is transcending compartments that we typically like to keep very much separated. I know at work, maybe you can't be boldly Christian. I understand. But you can be Christ-like, right? 
and then in our community, your neighborhoods, your community service, things you do in our town. Do you live graciously and wisely among the outsiders? Look at what he says in Colossians 4. Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Interesting. Paul says you're going to interact with outsiders. Now, when he says outsiders, it's not in a derogatory kind of way. He's just saying there are those who are within the life of Christ, and there are those who are still yet outside of that. They're not believers yet. And he turns his attention to how our words and our actions now, which he started with, remember, the peace of Christ and the word of Christ dwelling and ruling in our homes and our hearts that then move to our homes and our workplaces, but also how we treat other people who are not in the faith, not currently believers, that how our walk and our talk need to align in such a way that they see it. Because here's the thing, outsiders are not dumb, outsiders are not ignorant, They're watching you. You can't fool them with your hypocrisy. They're watching. Now, sometimes they're watching in ways that are not fair. I get it. Sometimes they're very hard on Christians. I understand that. But here's the thing. I know that as a Christian, I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect. Isn't that the truth? I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect. So if you're watching me to be a a perfect model of who Christ is, you're probably going to get disappointed. But I am forgiven, and I am moving toward Christ-likeness. And I'm hoping that people see that in me, especially those who are outsiders. So we need to pay attention to the way that we walk. That term walk is basically, uh, or he says the word to act, how you act toward outsiders. It's that word of how you walk. It's, it's the day-to-day stuff. It's the stuff that they see. Only God can see what's in your heart. Well, God knows I love him. Okay, I understand that. But do people see that? Because they don't see what's in your heart. They just see how you're acting. And do they see that Christ is your life? Because when we're living our lives under his lordship, under his leadership, then they should see that in how we live every day. They should see that we are gracious in how we treat people. Look at what he says. He says that we're to make the most most of every opportunity. That means that when we're with people, we should be living as though we really are a follower of Jesus, making the most of that opportunity. It doesn't mean if the street evangelize everybody. It just means this moment right now at work, in this cubicle next to so-and-so, this is actually a moment that they should be seeing Jesus in me in the way that I'm interacting with them. And when I'm a neighbor and I'm living in a neighborhood with other neighbors and disputes happen, they should be seeing Jesus in me. When I'm interacting on social media about whatever, because some of you love to debate out there, I love, I, I, I get it. But sometimes what I see Christians saying is not, very seasoned with salt, full of grace kind of stuff. And when you talk to outsiders, do you treat them harshly? He says your conversation should be grace-filled and seasoned with salt. You know what that means? Salt, in this case, isn't a preservative. It actually is a flavor enhancer. That's the form of salt they're using in this passage. How many like to salt your food? Yeah, I know. Some of you, you your doctor told you to stop. I get it. We go to 
La Roca and get nachos and add salt to the chips because they're not salty enough. So I, I get it. But salt has a purpose. It's to enhance the flavor of the food. And what he's basically saying is you should be talking to others in such a way that it actually enhances the gospel of Christ. That it actually adds value, enhances the testimony that you're a follower of Jesus. And here's the thing. If your commitment to Christ isn't real to you, it won't be worth considering for them. If he is not changing you, then it won't be challenging to them. So, all of us are born with this statement, blank is my life. Blank is my life. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. And that Christ's lordship should be over every area and arena of my life. That fact should influence and infuse how I am personally and privately when it comes to my own issues of peace in my heart and my mind and the word of God. It should impact how I interact at home with my spouse and with my kids as a parent, as a grandparent, whatever capacity you find yourself in the, fam- in the family relationship. It should take place in the workplace. Now, fortunately for me, I work in the church, so I got it pretty easy, but not all of you have that. But is that happening in your context of work? Is Christ there? And is he in how you interact with outsiders? Or are we living what we tend to do, compartmentalized lives? That you actually sometimes get embarrassed when these outsiders actually learn that you're a follower of Jesus because these two worlds really have never collided. Or when your family sees something different than your own personal relationship with Jesus because they've become compartmentalized. Or when your workplace, your boss is surprised to find out that you're a Christian because of how you act at work. See, Christ's lordship invades the whole space. So here's where I need some help. And I'm going to have Steve, because you sat on the second row, you're going to help me. So Steve, come up here. Steve didn't know he was going to do this, but he's going to do it. He's going to help me. All right. So we're going to take all these compartmentalized silks. I want you just to hang on to those for a second, all right? That's right. And we're going to put them in this. Don't worry, I'm not going to take another offering, Steve. (laughs) But we're going to put it right inside here, because this is really symbolic of our life, okay? So this is our life. All the things that we do, it's your life. I mean, I've heard people say, it's my life, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, until you're a Christian. And once you're a follower of Jesus, it may be your life, but you can't do whatever you want. Because now I influence every area of your life. In fact, I have a a nice silk here. Why don't you hold it out so everybody can see what that is, uh, the way it's supposed to go. I have a nice, very Caucasian-looking Jesus here. I'm not sure why they made him that way. But uh, that's a Jesus silk. And uh, we've been learning that we, we should fill that blank in with Christ. That he should infuse and influence every area of these lives, right? So let's take these silks again, and let's just place them right here in Christ where they belong. We're just going to ball them up and try to get them all infused together. Because our lives should be, what? In Christ. That, that's our mission. Living our life in Christ at home, privately, at work, in our community, that we don't live compartmentalized lives. In fact, we live instead. Let's just take these silks out again. Hold those for me in my tissue. 
that we should not see our life compartmentalized, but as one life. That I'm a Christian at home, at work. I'm a Christian in the community and privately. Is that true for us? If your coworkers were to fill that blank in for you, blank is my life, or your wife was to fill it in. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate you, man. Or anybody was to answer that question for you, could they say of you, Christ is obviously your life? Let's pray about that, can we? Lord, you know our lives. You know exactly every area and arena of our lives. We, We can't keep any of that hidden from you. David even said, where can I go from your presence? Because you are everywhere. That means you're involved in our work situation. You're involved in our home life. You're involved in where we are in our neighborhood, in our community, and in our personal lives as well. And Lord, I know we all feel the challenge here because it is so easy to live divided lives. It's so easy to make you Lord in one area and yet ignore the rest. But Lord, the challenge from you echoed through Paul's words to the church at Colossa and still here for us today is I am Lord over every area of your life. And when you choose to follow me, you follow me in every walk of your life. So Lord, remind us today of the areas where maybe we have not done that. Or maybe for some, if their life was to be summarized, it wouldn't be Christ is my life, it might be something else that's taken priority. Remind us that you're our Lord, and if we truly confess that, then that means you have that place in that blank that we've tried to fill with relationships or substances or activities that will not produce the life we want or that you want for us, but help us to make you our life in every area. Pray this today in Jesus' name.